We are back, everyone, with another episode of Marcus and Eric Learn Stuff from Smarter People. Today, we are joined by Broadway legend Kevin Duda. Oh, no. Legend. Oh, great. Thank you for being here, Kevin. How you doing? Good. How, how are you guys doing? We're doing good. It feels weird to call you Kevin because I always just call you Duda. Duda's good. It would be weird to call you Duda because I just met you two seconds ago, so I'll just call you Kevin. Yeah. All right. Maybe. You both can just call me Boo. Just call me Boo. Yo, Boo. <laughs> That's already our name for each other, so we can't. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> you you have more Broadway experience at such a young age than anyone I know. So we really want to talk to you about Broadway. What makes a, what it takes to make a Broadway show, the, the steps you have to go to to put on a Broadway show, and then what it's like to actually be in a Broadway show. And not just a Broadway show, but one of the best Broadway shows that's ever been Broadwayed. <laughs> I, I assume you're talking about Dangerous Liaisons? Yes. Uh-huh. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, Kevin was original cast member of the Book of Mormon um, and original cast member of Beautiful on Broadway. And I found this out yesterday when I was telling Eric about you. He, Eric, loves Beautiful, the musical. Obsessed with Beautiful. I've seen Book of Mormon also, which is amazing. But Beautiful is actually like my family's favorite Broadway musical. I mean, my mom and brother have probably seen it like legitimately 10 times. Wow, that's great. Yeah, humongous fans. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's a really good show. I mean, I was really surprised with how, how well um, it turned out, to be honest with you, because I, I don't always trust like, bi, you know, bio musicals. I think there's kind of like, a, like a, a need to be like, and then they wrote this, and then they wrote this, and then they wrote that, you know, it's like bringing that, it's just like the serious, serious greatest hits channel, you know, but that one did it really well. Yeah. I'd like to talk, dude, if you can, about the Book of Mormon. And since you were in it from its very, very beginning, even like during workshops and stuff, like how does an idea then become a workshop, then become a Broadway show? Like how does, can we talk, like really deconstruct that for us? Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, the the Book of Mormon process was, I think in like 2002. So there was a show on Broadway called Avenue Q that Bobby Lopez and Jeff Marks wrote. You know, it was kind of irreverent, right? It was like Sesame Street rated X. You know, it was like, it was kind of like right up, it, it, it made sense that it would have grabbed Matt and Trey's attention from South Park. And at the time, I just from honestly, from the same interviews you probably could see, I watched on Matt and Trey and they were like, they wanted to, they were fascinated by the Mormon religion. Um, so they went to see Avenue Q and they met with, with um, Bobby afterwards. They met with the writing team and they just kind of were like this, you know, what a great show. And we've been thinking about writing musicals. And so I think that's where the conversation started by the time, um, by the time it got to where I became involved, it was 2008. And that was kind of, you know, Matt and Trey were busy with South Park. I mean, they were, they were busy with South Park. Bobby was busy with, um, you know, Avenue Q and what, you know, all the, all the stuff he was writing. So I think they kind of caught each other when they could and they could write stuff. But by 2008, they had 28 pages written. So that was, it doesn't the first seem like point. a lot. Is that a lot or is that not a lot? It's really not a lot. No, like that's like, that's probably like, one half of act one what's the typical length of a uh broadway because i know film i know it's more TV. than 28 pages <laughs> it's yeah, more yeah. than 28 yeah. pages i mean the rule of thumb for broadway shows is like a minute per page for dialogue and i think three minutes per page for a song like there's a song included in the text so there's a great there's a there's an equation there someplace i would say most broadway shows are about like you know between 80 and 100 pages i don't actually know i've never even looked at the like the script for i know like 
most of the movies I've worked on have been like 105 pages or, you know, ish, like something like that. But 28 pages was not a lot, but it did. It also didn't like include all of it. That was act one for them kind of, and that didn't include all of act one, what it was obviously going to be. But like, you know, Matt and Trey have had um, the, the big news that we got was we walked in and we had to sign non-disclosure agreements. We had to sign. We basically signed our lives away to be part. Wait, you wait, you, you walked into wait, you walked into what and how did you become involved in it? So 2008 comes around and I'm going to do my first Broadway show, which was a revival of Dangerous Liaisons with Laura Linney and Sean Phillips and a whole bunch of like mega stars. Ben in that show with you? Ben Walker. Yeah, Ben Walker. Yeah. Just cool. Just just a, just a great cast. I mean, what a weird experience for like a musical theater guy like me to have like a play be their first thing. But it was super cool. And I'm glad I, you know, I'm glad it was. So the casting director for that project was Carnahan Casting and Carrie Gardner and Stephen, uh, Stephen. So, so Carrie ha- ends up casting Stephen Copel. There we go. I haven't seen him in a while. So Carrie ends up being the casting director that gets asked to do this Book of Mormon reading. So they're going to read these 28 pages. They're going to cast, you know, actors. And it was the first time that, that Matt and Trey would actually hear. Basically, the question was, do we get, do we think, we know that, we know that some, the South Park characters can get away with saying whatever we want to put in their mouths because they're, they're cartoon characters. So they were at this precipice of like, do we do it as a Broadway show or do we do it as a, as an animated thing, which is where our comfort zone is. And they really wanted to put together a, a cast to see if we really bought these, these words that they normally wrote for Stan and Eric and Cartman, like, like those kind of lines coming out of real people's mouths. So so, so casting reached out and kind of cast, cast like, you know, 12 perfectly like white Mormon <laughs> boys, then cast the African village as well. And then we, we did this, these 28 pages, the call came from casting. And then the call came from actually Bobby Lopez. I got a personal call from Bobby Lopez and I'll never forget. I was a temp at Citibank. That's my bank, by the way. That's my bank, by the way. Great. If you're going to be a temp at any bank, that's the bank to, to be a temp at. <laughs> It's still my bank because somehow I still get the employee no no fee. <laughs> uh, they haven't figured it out yet. I'm sure they'll figure it out after this podcast. So I escaped into the the back file room and Bobby was like, you know, I want to make sure you're cool with like, it's going to be, there's going to be cursing. There's, there's some decidedly religious undertones of the show and all this. And what, what is your comfort level? And I was like, listen, I'm an actor. I truly believe that like, it's my job to do whatever content comes my way and it doesn't have to represent me as a person. So it, it, it was, I just, yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad I did because I, I signed a non-disclosure and walked into what was the vineyard, uh, the vineyard theater down on 14th street. That's absolutely incredible. But I really want to, because you know, we're, we're stand-up comedians. So we, you know, like we, we have a sense of sort of like what it is to strive for something and really go forward and whatever. I want to just back up a second and tell me, I guess, how good it felt to get this opportunity and sort of like what it meant to you and and I guess how it changed your career. I mean, it's easier to look back on that than to look forward on what it was going to be because no one had any idea. So like I did the reading in 2008, which turned into a reading at the end of 2008, which turned into another reading at the beginning of 2009, which turned into a workshop in 2010. Basically, I knew at the by the by the end of the first reading what a big deal this was going to be. I didn't realize 
how big it was going to be, but I certainly knew that I wanted to be involved in it. And, you know, to get asked to do something, it's always that weird place for an actor because you're asked to do something. But after the first reading, I saw some people turn down the opportunity for the second reading because they had better jobs or, you know, because readings only pay like $100 for the week, you know, or $120 for the, a week of work. It's like not, it's not really a big moneymaker. But, you know, I, I saw people coming back after the first reading to try to get their spots after passing up the second reading to the third reading. And it wasn't open because they were starting to really kind of focus on who it was going to be. So I guess I knew, I guess to answer your question, I knew it was a big deal, but you know, you, you don't really see the ripples as they're kind of happening. You're, they're kind of, it, it certainly by the time we opened in 2011, it was a huge deal, you know, I mean, and by that point it was like, I was getting more commercial auditions because I had Book of Mormon on my resume and I was getting more meetings and all that stuff. But from 20 to 2008 to 2011, I don't, I don't really remember there being a big, like, because no one was talking about it. We weren't allowed to actually talk about it. <laughs> so every time someone was like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm doing this untitled musical and it may or may not be by the South Park guys, you know, and people would be like, tell me all about it. And I'd be like, oh, I can't, you know. Wasn't there a circumstance where you almost got into some trouble for oversharing? <laughs> okay, this is, this is where I will clarify this story once and for all. So I walked into the rehearsals for the book of, for the Broadway produ production of Book of Mormon, actually the workshop, the second workshop. And the stage manager who was brand new came out and we he sort of knew people. He, I didn't know her. She didn't know who I was. And she was like, listen, she was like, this workshop process has to be like a cocoon for the writers. You can't talk about it. You can't discuss anything. She said, case in point, I just bumped into someone on the street who was like, oh, I know someone in that they're playing Hitler. And all eyes went to me because I had been playing <laughs> Hitler the entire time in all these readings. So as the joke, I folded my my book up, I packed it in my bag, and I was like, "Thanks, everyone. I'm I'm good." I'm, I, I started to leave the room as a joke. The the basis for that whole story is my partner had been going to all the readings, so he knew he knew everything. He wasn't signed to the same non disclosure I was, but he bumped into a friend who happened to be friends with this stage manager. It literally was that simple. It wasn't like I was going around wearing like a sandwich board that was like, I play Hitler, you know, like, and it became the biggest joke. You weren't like killing Jews publicly. <laughs> no, no, you know, go figure, go figure. No, so, so anyways, I'm glad you asked because I've wanted to, to set the record straight on that one, but you know. So, okay, so where are we now in the process? You're in the first workshop. Well, you're in, I think like you've kind we've kind of, bounced around but yeah, yeah. So you're in like the workshop phase and there's a little buzz around it around the yeah. show because yeah. it, it was secret people didn't really know what what it was right when when did people get like the first look at this show it wasn't when it was opening on broadway right did you do like a no. week out of town or something we didn't do a week out of town scott rudin and, and, and anger if you know our producers were really vehement against. In fact, at one point we were supposed to go off Broadway with it. We were supposed to start doing a small version off Broadway because they were so kind of petrified. Not on a petrified is the right word, but they were so nervous about how to how to end how to what the entry level was going to be for the show. And it kind of was it, they kind of ended with a go big or go home attitude. But I will say we we for the workshops at the end of every workshop period, which is about four weeks long. So readings are when you have a script in front of you. You don't memorize anything. You don't do any choreography. You do maybe a little blocking from like working around the stage to where you're sitting, to where you're standing. You sing all the songs, you say all the words, and that's pretty much it. When you go to workshop, you're actually, the script goes away. You learn all your material. You learn your, your music, your words. You learn choreography. You, you do semblance of costume, costume changes. And there's semblance of scenic pieces as well. So we did two of those. 
And at the end of every four weeks of those two workshops, we did performances and the performances were basically invite only. Is there, I'm going to misquote this. Do you know if I said the, the fanboys, the fanboys is like, I think it's like an online group of like South Park of like, a, like they, they love South Park. And I think it's like gamers and, and anime animation, maybe, I don't know, something like that. We had like targeted groups of those people coming to the shows so they could give feedback and like what they thought. It's, workshop one to workshop two was completely different. It was a completely different creative team. It was almost like a different show. So by the time we got to the second one, we all knew that we had something special. We really knew when we did our first preview because our first preview, we did that, you know, we did that stupid high school thing where you peek out from behind the curtain. We were so stupid. Uh, we were just like, you know, like we were just like looking out. We were like, oh my God, this, <laughs> this crowd is, and at that point we had done security training. Security training. What does that mean? No one knew how this show was going to be represented like, no, or, or accepted. Like no one knew that because of the content like an attack in the theater or whatever like something like that yeah or like yeah or stage door and they didn't know what the what the they didn't know what the response was going to be they didn't know if people were going to be angry because the whole you know one of the early songs the very first song for the african villagers curses god like i mean in very blatant terms like the lyrics are very very you know very on on the nose so it's not like it's you know it's, it's matt and trey and bobby it's not like they're going to they're going to say what they say. They're not going to make excuses for it. So, so we didn't know what was going to happen. And we got out there and the applause from the first number alone was like deafening. Like it, we, we, we missed cues. We, we didn't know to go on because the applause was so much. It was crazy. Well, I think it's, I think it's also like, you know, they've cultivated such a following. If you come to a Trey Parker, Matt Stone show, you're going to expect anti-religion joke. You know, if you go to a Louis C.K. show, there's going to be pedophile jokes. It's, you know, it's like, yeah. it's like that, that's that's what you signed up for. But so it's not it's not what's great about that is it's really a passionate fan base. Right. It's not just like your average like Times Square tourist. Right. And tickets were so hard to come by that they were only going to those people who are who were truly seeking them out. You know, like they were all they, they, a thousand, eleven hundred people a night, eight shows a week, eight thousand people a week. You know, we were sold out for years in advance because there were people who were actively looking for those tickets, as opposed to like what you just said, the Times Square tourist who goes to TKTS. I was like, sure, I'll see fans. I'm sure I'll see whatever. Like this was a group of of attentive fans that were ready to be entertained. I guess I wanted to ask because Marcus and I were just sort of talking about this on our own before the before you came on. But like, what is it like, I guess, being a Broadway actor just sort of amongst your your colleagues, amongst your Broadway actor friends, as far as like, you know, competition goes? Is it supportive? Is it cutthroat? Is it cutthroat while being supportive? What, what, uh, what's your sense of it? Uh, the latter is the best description. It's, it's, uh, it's cutthroat while being supportive. I mean, everyone's after a job, right? But you, you have these, you have people who Broadway is, is a fickle, um, industry because it truly is a marketing machine and, and, and popularity of show. And the show is only going to be open. It's not like a movie that you could just flip on. You know what I mean? A Broadway show only exists for the people that buy tickets to go see it. Other than like, you know, now Hamilton is like on Disney Plus and that will always live on there. But, you know, for us, you meet a lot of people who who can't get work and who are who are, you know, trying to climb the ladder and it's when you when you get one of those spots, you know, you, you don't take it for granted. But I mean, it's cutthroat still. The amount of people that called me for the first year and a half to two, maybe even three years after we opened to try to get advice on auditioning for the show, it was like constant. It was constant. People were sending me emails being like, 
hey, I have an audition for Mormon. Do you can you give me any notes on this scene? And like, and my my advice was always like, get come see the show. Like, you know, like ghost. There's stand standing room tickets for twenty bucks in the back. You know, you can. And I I don't mean I didn't mean that to slight them. I just meant like. I'm not going to tell you anything you can't see from the actual performances that are happening. Right? And they think, and they automatically assume, you know, you have some in where you could help out anybody you mildly know, have like a decent relationship with. And like, right. you know, we, we get the same thing, Marcus and I, you know, a lot in comedy where like, you know, we, we work, you know, at, at like, you know, the best clubs or whatever. So people will be like, can you get me in? And I'm like, no, I'm like, I yeah. don't have, I'm like, it's a privilege for me to be here. I don't have the power to, you know, I'm not David Teller, Colin Quinn. I don't have the power to, to do that, you know? So, right. uh, but, but, but I'm curious, I I'm, I'm assuming, you know, your community is just sort of similar to the comedy community and that like very, very fiercely competitive and uh, a lot of talented people who yep. don't get stuff. Yep. Do you, do you have somebody that you've sort of like started with around the same time, kind of came up through the ranks with, and you know, you're still really good friends and work often? Oh yeah. I mean, the Broadway community is super, I, mean, I don't know about the co comedy community, but the Broadway community is super small. When you really boil it down, like you're seeing the same 20 or 30 people at every audition, you know, and then once you get in, you usually, and especially with, the, with Mormon, the way the Mormon happened, because it was reading to reading to reading to workshop to workshop, and they kept people along that whole route. So there were people we call them we call them the twenty eight page club. Like there are people who started with the very first that ended up in the Broadway company, and there are people that didn't not because they weren't talented or they didn't fit. It was just scheduling or you know whatever. Wow. Everyone everyone who touched that piece was super talented. How many people were in the twenty eight page club that made it to opening night? Out of like eighteen to twenty, maybe out of, out of like twenty twenty two people, probably like eight between eight and ten people. Wow, about half. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a Crazy. lot of people that made it. Yeah. And who are these privileged people who said, no, I don't have to do this Trey and Matt show. I'm going to go <laughs> off. And yeah. Well, <laughs> it, I don't know. It wasn't privilege as much as like, you know, you get like, a, you know, you get like a national tour and the national tour producer. That's the other thing about Broadway that people don't realize is, you know, it's six days a week, eight shows a week. You're kind of it's we, we call it like, the, you know, the golden handcuffs. And there's a reason it's called that. It's because it's the best job you can get. Um, as an actor, it's the, it's lucrative. It's, you get to work at home. You don't need to travel, but you are locked in Tuesday through Sunday and you're not going anywhere. And you get very limited sick days. And even when you get a sick day, sometimes you actually can't be out of the show because too many other people are sick that day. You know, like there's so many, there's, it's a very specialized industry. So I would say those people, and I know a few of them were regretful that they passed up the opportunity, but like I know one of them particularly got a, a national tour and the the producer wouldn't let him out of his contract. So he couldn't he couldn't technically go back and the national tour money to a to a reading money is like, you know, it's like pennies to thousands of dollars, you know, like comparatively. So I don't blame him. It's just tough. It was a it was a tough loss. I almost lost the first workshop because I was on tour and the producer that I that was I, I was on tour for wasn't gonna let me go. And then then, you know, I pulled, called some lawyers. Man, that's so interesting. And so what, okay, so Book of Mormon, incredible. And so when did you end your run on Book of Mormon? So around the second, uh, third year Book of Mormon, maybe just before the, the beginning of the third year Book of Mormon, the same casting director called and was like, they want you to do a reading of this Carol King musical. You know, do you want to go do it? And, and at that point I'd done 800, 1,000 Book of Mormon performances. And when you get into that kind of schedule, 
I don't, I don't want to say that you're, you're not resentful for the material at all because the material is still amazing and fun, but you are looking to kind of be like, okay, cool. I could do something else at this point for like a minute, you know? So, so readings are really attractive to Broadway, to Broadway performers because they get to flex their muscles. Cause if you think about it, like it's, it's almost like, you know, being in karate and only ever doing left kicks, you know, that's what a Broadway show is. You're always constantly doing the same thing over and over again. So your body adapts, your voice adapts. And um, it's nice to get out and kind of flex your other muscles. So I, I was like, sure, yeah, I'll do, I'll do that. And um, my big joke, my big joke was that my mom and dad couldn't see Book of Mormon, and I wanted to finally do a musical where they could see it. Oh, that's <laughs> you awesome. know, that's that's, awesome. that's not true because they ended up coming to see it and loving it and thinking it was great. But I I did Beautiful twice, I think. No, actually, I think I only did one reading. Maybe I did two readings. And I was like, and then they then they were like, Beautiful said, you know, we're gonna go out of town to San Francisco. Do you think you get a leave of absence from Book of Mormon? And I was like, yeah, let me let me try. So I tried, and Book of Mormon was like, absolutely. You know, you've been a great company member. Go for it. And I was like, great, I'm coming back. Don't worry beautiful is going to happen. Then I'll be able to come back. It's not going to go anywhere. Not that it's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to go anywhere immediately. And uh, while I'm out in San Francisco, beautiful, they're like, okay, so when we all get home two weeks later, we're going to start rehearsals for the Broadway company of beautiful. And I was like, Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> okay. Now I have to make a decision. Now all of a sudden, like going from like a career in my early days where I was like, I don't have a job to now I was like, I have two jobs, which was like seemingly a blessing. But at the same time, I was like, crap, I don't, I don't really know what I should do. And I kind of weighed the odds. And I was like, you know, my biggest regret would be as if I only did one musical on Broadway. And I didn't, you never know when your next job is going to be. So I was like, I sort of have to take the, the bird, the bird in hand, you know, a little bit in a way. So I wrote to Book of Mormon and I was like, uh, hey guys, <laughs> so I'm going to be back for two weeks. And then I think I have to go. I ended up negotiating two weeks to do the to book, book, book of Mormon. And also with beautiful, those two weeks, I actually did double duty. So I would rehearse for Beautiful wow. during the day and do Book of Mormon at night because I felt bad. You know, it takes time to, yeah. to find someone, rehearse someone. And Did people think you were crazy, the people in Book of Mormon, to just leave this hit show to go try out this other show that could have could open and then close in a week it could have yeah it could have gone out the window yeah they were they were kind of they were i think it's 50 50 you always think like okay well i would do the same thing if i was in your shoes i would want the opportunity but who knows you're always taking the chance the thing about mormon though is i feel like if beautiful had failed i would have been able to call them and say hey listen i'm here whenever you need me to go back in they were great they were such a good company they they were so good to us and beautiful was too i i, I ended up being lucky not just in in show but in management both companies were really good to us so what year did you start beautiful sorry you said uh 2000 and what 2013 so we started rehearsals for mormon in 2010 or 20 2010 2011 and then we opened in 2011 and i did almost two so uh almost 1200 i almost did three i almost made it to three years with book of mormon uh, so i was incredible. so december of 2013 so i did 11 12 13 yeah, almost three years proper. Amazing. And then so you started you started Beautiful in 2013. And then I guess uh, talk about that experience of like starting in New York on, on Beautiful. Yeah, we'd sort of had the opposite effect of Mormon because, or the experience, because Beautiful, I only joined with the last reading. And I, then I went right into full performances in, um, in San Francisco. So bringing that, the show was pretty much, the show was pretty much, I will say about Beautiful, they figured everything out where Mormon figured things out kind of in workshops slowly and kind of meticulously beautiful kind of threw all the pieces on the stage because they were all good pieces. And then as the, they did a, a kind of a true, a true Broadway version, which is as the show gets seen by people and they kind of 
see what people laugh at and see what people like and you know all that kind of audience reaction they shaped the show in those four weeks in um in san francisco so by the fourth week of san francisco we were throwing in some pretty major changes to the show and it was probably so it felt so tight right like the scripts felt really tight and yeah 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 and 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 they just needed you know they needed to work out basically how do you end the show without doing tapestry for six hours and how do you end the show without doing like six endings, you know, because that was, that was one of the big problems. I remember in San Francisco, like on a Sunday, the director came up and was like, so we're adding a new part. We're adding a new role on Tuesday and you're going to play it. And I was like, cool. That's great. He was like, so head down, they're going to fit you for a beard uh, and we'll get you pages on Tuesday afternoon. So we went in. So I was going to play Lou Adler, who was her, her record producer for tapestry. And so I went and got this massive beard on. The only one they had in stock was like this. It was like this fiddler on the roof, like Jew, like it was like this big Jewish, <laughs> you know, like, like Tevya beard. They put that on me on Tuesday and we rehearsed other things that were important. And we didn't even get to the point where they could rehearse true blocking for us for this new scene. So it was me and Jesse Mueller and the director who was like very trustworthy of both of us, thank God, was like, so you guys just work out like he gave us sort of like blocking but he was like you guys just work it out lights up and don't worry about it you know so we it was great i mean any listen anyone would die for a, a scene partner like jesse mueller to do a scene mm -hmm. with sure so, of course uh, you, you know we kind of riffed off each other and did that and that was in tuesday night and then we started rehearsing it on on wednesday or thursday wow so, that's insane it was cool. i want to ask you a few like questions i i love to ask all friends who are performers have you ever just blanked on stage? Absolutely. What happened? Book of Mormon. I was the worst. I mean, literally like the term understudy is perfect for me because I was understudied. Like I just <laughs> never, I never, <laughs> I never learned the right lyrics. I never, it was the biggest joke in the cast. I mean, the thing about me is I was trained in improv. So sure. I, I, I have this ability to, to, I could fill in lyrics. I could fill in lyrics. I can fill in lines. It's a stupid, stupid trait to have as an actor on Broadway because it really should never be useful. But after my first performance, when I understudied um, Rannells and Rannells came to me on, we did the, we got the Tony on Monday, all the Tonys on Monday. Andrew was in on Tuesday night. And then he looked at me after the show. He was like, have fun tomorrow. <laughs> and so the two shows on Wednesday after the Tonys, I went on as, as Elder Price. And I was like, all right, cool. I got this. But then like, you forget that as an actor, you're, you're, you have your, you have what you've learned and then you have what you're experiencing on stage. And the experience was like, come on. Like it was like Book of Mormon, the lead. It was, you know, you're on stage for 80% of act one. You don't get any breaks. And so I just started going up on lyrics left and right. And I started putting in lyrics that rhymed. And so, you know, Nikki, <laughs> Mickey James, Nikki James was like, I don't know what the hell you were doing out there. She was like, it made sense, but I've <laughs> never heard any of those lyrics before. And I got, and after the show, Ann Garofino, the producer, who is now one of my best friends, we, she came up to the dressing room and she was like, looks like I need to pay you a percentage for writing all those new <laughs> lyrics. Oh no, was anyone I mad guess, at you? I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, like, the writer you know, probably, right? Probably, but also like, you know, Josh Gad at that point, Josh was in, Josh was doing his show and you never want to let down the other actor that's doing their show. Like 
you don't want, I don't want him to go back into like rehearsal to have to deal with me, right? Like my job as the understudy is supposed to be to just drop in like, and make sure his, like, make sure I cover all the things I was supposed to cover, make sure his show doesn't get like wildly, you know, changed. And and there was sometimes where Greg Gab would look at me and be like, huh, that's uh, it's an interesting line. And I'm going to, I'm going to wa- walk around it and kind of answer you, but it's not going to make any sense. So I was, I was constantly known for that, which is a bad trait, which is probably why I get out of the business. <laughs> I probably, probably needed to, uh, to, to go back to the books. So yeah. So a few times on, um, uh, on blanking on stage for sure. It's the worst. I hate that. I hate yeah, yeah. that. That happens. The difference is like when we do it, we could like just try to make it funny and just be like, Oh, I don't remember anything I said or like take out notes and be like, sorry, this is so important or something and like you don't have that luxury because you're you have to stay, stick to the script right right there's 14 orchestra members who are continuing on with the song whether or not i, <laughs> I sing the right lyric or not and like Stephen remus the conductor who's a good friend was like in the end conducting and kind of like shaking his like everyone had this like quizzical look on like i know what like anika anika larson when i went on in beautiful cut to beautiful and i'm doing it again because I went on as very, very opposite her. And again, like I, I just didn't, I don't, I don't have the ability to learn, learn exact lines. I mean, that's kind of a big thing to be an actor on Broadway. <laughs> I know, I know. I have this thing where I kind of just like interpret the lines written for me. But then you read about like every actor in Hollywood is dys- dyslex- dyslexic. You're like, and you're like, oh, I guess they pull it off. Like, I don't know, you know? Anika, Anika Larson came up to me. She was like, it's so strange. She's like, because I know what you're saying isn't right, but I look and I, I look at you and I trust you. <laughs> so she's like, I know, I know that like nothing you're saying is the exact words, but you're saying that like, you're saying the gist of what's supposed mm-hmm. to be. <laughs> you're saying, you're getting the subtext right. Just it's a different way of saying it. I'm basically a Cliff Notes Broadway actor. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Yeah. It's terrible. You you have a very a trustworthy presentation, which I'm sure you learned from your days at the bank. You have to look very trustworthy. <laughs> exactly. Like, okay, I'm going to give you a really good example. What's my favorite is when the stage manager of Book of Mormon had had it with me. Like, she was like, she came to me and she's like, I can't in all good faith tell all the other understudies that they need to know their lines if you who have been here for five years basically don't know yours. And the truth is, I will say in my defense, I do have this weird uh, steel trap memory where I actually could tell you the lines from the 2008 reading. So here I am in 2011 and I've got all these versions spinning through my head. Like I can't forget like a really good rhyme that they made in 2008. But anyways, I'll tell you the opening of Bible as a trilogy is, um, that Price says, I'm going to take you back to biblical times, 1823. And he goes on to the song. And in my dress rehearsal, I said, I'm going to take you back to Bible days. <laughs> and, and from the audience, you just heard, no, Kevin. And it was the stage manager just being like, that, stop, stop, you know, stop uh, crapping all over the script. You probably had like, di- like I was a rent head in the early not or late 90s, right? Or- loved rent i would like mouth the words with everyone when i would go see it live and i would you know i'd get like the 20 dollar front row rush tickets and yeah. if, 
if if whoever was playing Mark or Roger messed up their lines, I would be like a little like perplexed. Like, wait, you're on Broadway. And and when I saw um Drew Lachey. Drew Lachey was Mark and Rent. I saw him the second day he was Mark. Okay. And during there was a part during La Viva Wem where he was like supposed to go on this a tangent. You know, La Viva Wem is kind of like a, a fast paced song and rent. Yeah, real words. A lot of words. Yeah. A lot of work. He just went. Listen, I feel for him. I know. I bet you do. <laughs> and I just thought it was. First of all, I thought it was awesome because I was like, oh, I was at that show where the guy from 98 Degrees messed up rent. But but when you don't have that, like if you're not like a celebrity coming into a musical and you're just, you know, Kevin Duda stepping in ensemble, stepping into the role of Price. Yep. It, yep. You know, you, you, I mean, because I'm assuming there were diehard Book of Mormon and still are. I'm assuming, especially the week after the Tonys, they were there and being like, oh, no, come on, Kevin. And they bootleg record your show and then give it to you afterwards. And you're like, great. Wait, do you have this? You have you as price? Absolutely. And you can hear the lyric flubs left and right. I mean, it's just awful. I need to see this. Our next <laughs> night, Kevin, I'm coming over to, I'm, I'm coming to Queens. <laughs> <laughs> Done. Done. I will proudly share it, especially now that my, my, my reputation is, is solid and I can just leave, leave it where it was. Well, yeah, I mean, so you, you can, you pretty much did Broadway. Now, would you ever go back to Broadway? I know now you're doing more TV producing and writing for television, but would you ever go back to Broadway? When it opens up again? When it opens up again, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm not like pursuing it, like, I, but there's no part of me that's like, I did it and I'm done. I, I definitely am like, okay, I did it. it. To me, it's always like college or New York City, like where people are like, okay, I, I didn't do it, I'm going to finish it, but it's always going to be there. You can always kind of go back to it. And I feel like this, I'm never going to lose the skill set. I may be rusty or <laughs> overweight. But by the time oh. I need to go, <laughs> by the time I need to go back, you know, I, there's always, there's always getting back in shape. And I think it would take the right, the right project for me, you know, because especially, and I don't mean, I don't want to sound, I certainly don't want to sound like I'm better than any, any project, but I will say that having done Book of Mormon and Beautiful for almost eight years straight, like, I don't know two better shows to that, that would fulfill, you know, I just don't want to do any old show at this point because it would never stack up against those experiences. Yeah, I mean, you did you did two you know amazing shows. Yeah, and, yeah. and completely completely different shows too. Two completely, completely different shows. I was just going to ask, like, I know we only have a few minutes left. What what do you think is the best advice you've been given about not necessarily being a Broadway actor in general, but sort of just being in this business? And what's the worst advice you've been given? Let's see. The worst advice is going to take me a minute. But the, the best advice, uh, you know, I always say half, half the struggle of being a successful actor is the persistence. And it's not the persistence in necessarily like always knocking on the same door. The persistence to me is like staying in New York City, staying where the action is. Because no, no one ever said to me, you may be good for one role and not good for another. Like it was always kind of like an actor's job to be good at every, like good at every role. And I could play any role. And it's like, well, yes, that's true. In theory, you can play every role, but staying in New York and being here because opportunity, the, what, what, one of the things, the things that I love, which was Nikki James actually taught me is like, is luck is when opportunity meets preparedness because there's no true such thing as luck. Like luck that you only are as lucky as you're prepared to be lucky. And you're only as lucky as the opportunity presents itself to be lucky. So if you stay in New York city or wherever LA to be in film, uh, Atlanta to be in film, you know, like those hot spots, 
if you stay in those places and make it your job to not leave and to be always there for when that opportunity presents itself, that's probably the best advice I could give. Uh, the worst advice is, oh no, that's a really good question. The worst advice I've been given is, I don't know, like that you have to be a master of so many different things, you know, like, like that, that, that it's not good enough just to be, uh, you know, really good at one focused thing that you want to do because there's going to be opportunity for that one focused thing. So there's these people that kind of run wild in New York and try to learn every single skill they can and learn every single thing. And it's like, you know, you don't have to be an amazing opera singer at the same time as being a music theater performer. You don't have to be a tap guru at the same time as you're taking ballet class. You know, you can really kind of focus. You know, there is a lot, there is a lot that is asked of actors. So I can see why people do that. And I say, you know, take all experiences in, but you don't, don't focus on what you can focus on. Love that. I was going to say that. I love that. I think that that makes perfect sense. Duda, we are finished here. Where where can people find no you? No way. Where, that was it. You can find me in Queens. You can find me <laughs> at on Twitter. I'm at Kevin Duda. And on Instagram, I'm at Kevin Duda Graham. And I've got two new websites coming up. So I've got my my Ooh. personal website, Kevin KevinDuda.com, which is getting a refresh. Is that, is that your OnlyFans account? That's my OnlyFans account. <laughs> okay, great. And uh, KevinDudaProductions.com, which is where I do all my TV and film stuff. Awesome, man. Well, you're crushing it. Thank you for your time today. I know your time is very valuable. You are a busy man. So thank you so much, dude. Thanks, Marcus. Thanks, Eric. Great to meet you. And guys, do do what I'm about to do and follow uh, Kevin on everything, all social media. Thanks, y'all. Yeah, do it all. Thanks, producer Blaze. Appreciate the time. What'd you learn, Marcus? I learned that Broadway is H-A-R-D. What did you learn, Eric? I learned that you know how to spell the word hard. <laughs> that's all you learned. And I also learned that Broadway is like pretty much as hopeless as comedy is. So that's Pretty much, nice. pretty yeah. much. My name is Marcus Monroe. And I am Eric Newman. Find us on all social media platforms. This has been Marcus and Eric. Learn stuff from smarter people. Thanks, guys. This is Kate Zazowski. And this is Caitlin Reese. And we are straight guys. Okay, no, we're not. We're actually queer women. Fooled ya. Literally no one believed we were actually straight guys. Your mom did. That doesn't even make sense. Join us as we roast straight and gay culture, answer sex and dating questions from straight folks, and make the news gay. We also roast each other. It's pretty easy. Caitlin kind of sucks. And we have a lot of funny queer special guests. So listen to Straight Guys. A podcast that's anything but on Paperhouse Network.